The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. Let's have a word of prayer, and we're going to look into a study here, kind of a sort of a Christmas study today, I should say. So, Father, we're thankful for your word this morning, and we uh, thankful for, again, uh, the coming of your Son into this world to become like one of us. And as we look at your word, what it has to say to us about these things, um, <clears throat> we ask that you would cause us to have uh, a keen appreciation for our relationship uh, to these truths and uh, how they affect us uh, in the present time. And we thank you for that. Amen. Um, I don't know if, if some of you may remember this from just a handful of years ago. I don't know. It might have been three years ago, four years ago. I really can't tell you. I didn't look at my outlines because uh, I did pull them out the other day looking at these, um, thinking through this. But I wanted to take a little bit of time this morning. And uh, I... I ultimately want to get to the Gospel of John, and I don't know, I, I really don't know how many of you or any of you uh, read the, the blog that I put up once or twice a week, um, and this week I've, I did one, I was trying to do one every day, uh, and primarily it was just getting people to think about Christ coming into the world, and this one has been focused on John, the Gospel of John, which is where this study is heading today. But before that, I just want to answer this question at the beginning very, very briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But why do we have four Gospels? Why is it that God chose four different men to write the Gospels? And of those four men, why do we... John, John I think maybe we get that. Because John was a... Who was John? Yeah, he was one of Jesus' disciples, and on top of that, the disciple that, that Christ loved, he says. So I think we, 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 we can get John. But Matthew? I mean, you ever wonder, why did that guy write a gospel? I mean, who is he? He also is one of, one of the disciples. But you don't hardly hear anything about Matthew. You know? Why didn't he pick Andrew? You know? Peter's brother. Why didn't he pick him to write a gospel? He was one of the he was one of the the inner core. You know, you got the twelve, and then those are the guys that are that are mentioned in connection with Jesus more than the rest of the twelve. All of them were his disciples. Of course, one of them ended up being a uh, an unbeliever, plainly. But uh, why Matthew? And then you come to Mark. Mark's not even a disciple. <coughs> Mark's not even a disciple. He was Paul's right hand man for a short period, a very short period of time. He ends up becoming. Peter's right-hand man, and Peter mentions him. Why does he write? And then Luke. <laughs> Luke, he's not even a Jew. Luke's a Gentile. He's a Gentile physician that probably was serving someplace up in northeast Turkey, joins Paul's party as just before they head over to Philippi in Acts 16. And we know that because the, the storyline in Acts goes from and he and they and he and they and he and they to and we and we and we. And you can kind of see where Luke joins the group in that. Why Luke? Why is Luke in this? In other words, the whole, one of the whole interesting things, about, and the thing is people today go, well, probably Matthew didn't really write that. And do we really know? It, it, they, it's really interesting. You know, you're, you're writing 1,800 years after all these events. And the reason I say 1,800 years because people were questioning these things back for two or 300 years. Did these guys really write this? Probably somebody wrote this two or 300 years after the fact. This is the thing. But the problem is there's not evidence that it was written two or 300 years after the fact. The evidence is people knew about these Gospels. About 170 A.D., so about 70 years after the, after the New Testament canon is closed, there is a man that takes all four of the Gospels and creates a harmony of the life of Christ. It's called the Diatessaron, the fancy word for this book. That's what they called it. And guess what? He takes all four of those Gospels 
and he mentions all of the writers of these Gospels by name. So by 170, these guys were all known. But you even have them known by a man by the name of Papias who is writing probably either 95 to about 105 in that range, about 10 years right in there. And he writes, and he mentions the writers of these Gospels, including Matthew. And so we have a lot of evidence that these books early on, the church recognized them. I, I was listening to somebody say this the other day. There's a, there are people, and you're going to run into sometimes people that, that are educated. They think they're educated because they've listened to somebody on YouTube tell them, you know, there was a council about 325, and they decided what books are in the Bible, what made them write, and that's baloney. There was no council that decided what books were in the Bible in 325. What they did was they formally acknowledged what the church was already saying. We have record long before that that the church recognized what books were part of Scripture and what books weren't. Because it's not a council that decides what the Word of God is. It's the Word itself. They're self-authenticating. They testify to their own genuineness, not just by saying, hey, I'm the Word of God. You know, anybody could have written something. This is the Word of God. Anybody could have done that. It's that they actually fit and agree. And that, to me, is the amazing thing about these four Gospels, is that you have four different people with different backgrounds, and they are giving an account, not a biography of Christ. They're not giving biographies of Christ, because only two of them talk about his birth. Two of them say nothing, really, about his birth directly. Okay? John does, kind of in an indirect way, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But they don't talk about his birth. Only two of them do. And then they kind of leave off, and Luke kind of gives us a little glimpse in the middle of Jesus' life at about age 12, and then you don't hear anything else. So for the majority of 30 years, they just skip over that. If you had a biography, if you picked up a biography and you had a, I don't know, I've, I've read different biographies by people, you read a biography of somebody, don't you want them to tell you something about their childhood? A little bit of how they were raised. What did their mom and daddy think? Because does that, does that affect you? Every one of you here are a product of the way your mom and dad raised you, aren't you? Sometimes you rebelled against that, and sometimes you embraced it. Most of us were kind of somewhere in between those two, <laughs> two poles, you know. We adopt some of it, and we change a little bit. But we're definitely a product of our parents, of our parenting. And you want to know that in a biography. These Gospels don't tell us a ton about how Jesus was parented. We learn a little bit from Luke about Mary. We learn a little bit. One of the things you learn about from Matthew about Joseph, and Joseph, remember, is supposed to be his father, supposed, not really his father. It says that. But Joseph, it says, was a righteous man. So he was concerned. He wanted to do the right thing. Joseph wanted to do that. So I think these things are important for us to understand when we come to the, these, these books, what they're really about. What these books are really about is what was Jesus doing during his earthly ministry? That's what the four Gospels are really about. And these four Gospels don't all tell all the same things but when you put their stories together, unless you're trying to make the stories conflict with each other, which there are people that do that, every place where people say, well, there's a disagreement there, and you say, why is it like when you have the women coming to the, to the tomb at the resurrection, they go, well, it says here it was dark, and here it says the sun was coming up. Well, I get up in the summertime well, not in the summertime. Let's say in the springtime. I get up in the springtime, and my wife will tell you, I'll get up at, at 10, to, 10 to 6 or 6 o'clock, put on my stuff, head out, and I'll go out running. And there's times when I head out. It's dark. But by the time I get home, the sun's starting to come up. Now, it actually isn't over the horizon, maybe, at some times, or it's right at the horizon. It starts to get in light by the time I get back. If you're out there for about an hour, you're there to watch that transition from dark to light. What's, what is a problem with the fact that these women, one of them's telling you, hey, when the women got ready to go, it was dark. But by the time they get all their stuff together and they head out there and they get together, because it's not just one lady, they got to get those friends together. And I don't know, maybe they're better than my friends, but my friends are not ready to go on time. 
giving people hard times. All I'm doing. It's not that's not true with Dwight, by the way. Dwight, Dwight, Dwight. I can keep. I can set the clock by Dwight sometimes. But but you, you know what I'm saying? That everybody's not ready, and you get everybody together, and by the time you get yourselves together and head out of the city and get out there to where the tomb is out there in the garden, some time's passed, and now the sun's coming up, especially. If this, if this happened in the spring, which we know it happened in the spring because it happened at, in connection with Passover and we know what time of your Passover was. So all of this simply to say that you can take this, this material and you can collate. You don't have to force it together. It does come together. And it tells you a different story. And I've, I've shared this with you before. When Katie was a baby and I was first in seminary, I had, one, I had an afternoon off from work and we decided to go for a walk in this, neighbor down, this neighborhood down in Forest, Forest Grove and we were going and we watched a car go through, head coming up to an intersection and we no sooner had just got through the intersection then, boom, there was this huge bang. We turned around and this car drove through the intersection, got hit by a school bus car got completely thrown up into a yard and was laying up next to a house in there. And we weren't the only witnesses to this accident. There was also two other people. So there was a total of, well, technically four adults, but Peg and I pretty much saw the same thing. But even Peg and I, even when we're, our stories weren't identical, it's not that we were contradictory. It's just that she kind of witnessed a little bit different than I witnessed, you know, in all of this. And that happens. And it doesn't mean that any one person is right and the others are wrong. It's just that you all have a different vantage. And the Holy Spirit uses these men, taking the information that they have, what they've personally witnessed, what they've gotten from others, and they put this together. So that's a long introduction to the fact that we have four Gospels. Now Matthew, if you look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew 1, verse 1 says, the, the, the book of the genealogy, the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, why does he say that? Son of David, son of Abraham. What's significant about those two men? First of all, who is David? King. He was like, from the Jews' perspective, he was the king, you know? It was kind of like, I, I can't... You all know what that's like. Those of you that follow sports, some of you aren't sports people, so I'm not going to try to use a lot of sports metaphors here, but some of you guys know that there's some people that it's like that guy's record for the number of, in, in football, the number of yards that person ran in their career is phenomenal, and everybody goes, no one's beat that yet. Things like, you all know what I'm talking about. Well, that was David. David was like the king. He was like, he was like the all-star King, the all-star player in Israel. Who is Abraham? He was promised that kings would come from him. He's, he's the patriarch. He's the one that God chose to start the family. And in the midst of that family, we're going to come, as Josh said, kings. If you want to look at that in your Bibles, you can look at that over in Genesis chapter 17. Seven, Genesis 17, 6, okay? And you can see that, where he was promised kings would come from him. We know that David was promised that there would be kings from him because he was a king and he was going to give birth to kings. Not him literally, directly, but, you know, uh, a line of kings that would, that would descend from David. And this is what he was. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, chapter 2, Matthew. And it says in verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi, those were, we, we always think of magicians, but, but technically these are people that are trying to discern the events in, in time by watching, excuse me, by watching the stars, which is the Old Testament word Chaldean that referred to the people of Babylonia. That's what Chaldean meant, stargazers. And they were stargazers trying to determine what was going to happen. They're like the original horoscope readers, okay? So he says, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born? What's that word, everybody? King. King, King of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So they look at him as this one that is 
king of the Jews, and it actually, if you go down in the context here, eventually they go out and they fall before Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as king of the Jews. So what is Matthew presenting when we have this? He's presenting Jesus Christ as king, king of Israel. Now, here's a question. And he, and he has a legitimate right. I, we, let's go back into chapter 1 for just a minute here. We may not get to John today. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Too long of an introduction. We may not get to this. But it says, um, when you have the, uh, the genealogy, and it says, uh, um, let's go to verse 16 of chapter 1. Uh, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And it says, by, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Everybody else in this genealogy, except for a couple of Gentile women that are mentioned in this. It's very important. There are a couple of Gentile women mentioned in here that are connected with this. Um, but the husband of Mary, by whom? Now, the word whom in the Greek is feminine. It's feminine. It's not referring to Joseph. It's referring to Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So it's important here that, it in, that Matthew is indicating Joseph's not really the father. And we know that if you keep reading and you get into the rest of this, that an angel comes and talks to Joseph and tells him what's going to happen. Okay, So he's talking to him about being king. Now, Joseph's side of the family would have been the ones that people would have been concerned about. They would have been concerned, well, is, you, is your dad from the tribe of David? From the tribe of Judah. Yeah, okay. Well, you got a right to the throne then, that way. But the problem with that is, and we're not, I'm getting into stuff I wasn't planning on talking about, but if you went back in the genealogy, you find out that he descends from a king from whom God told <coughs> Jeremiah, write him childless. Not to mean the guy didn't have kids, he had kids. But what he's saying is, his kids aren't going to sit on the throne. Okay, because he was a really blatant idolater and really did not help the nation of Israel. So Matthew is talking to us about Jesus as the king, and there's so many different things that go on in there. But here, here's, here's a point. Why did God want to give the book of Matthew to us? Because when did Matthew write this? Was he writing this during Jesus' earthly ministry to explain to the Jews what's going on? No, it's all written after that. It's written after the church has begun. And Jim? Okay, no, we shouldn't do that. We'll, we'll test those people who are in Jim's class. Is Jesus the king of the church? Is he the king sitting on the throne and ruling today? No, that's one of the things that Jim was pointing out again today. The father is the one sitting on the throne today. He's, he's going to give Christ the throne in the future. So if you keep that in mind, Christ is not reigning today. See, a lot of people think, see, he's the king. And they don't think, a lot of Christians think Christ is sitting on his throne today. But it tells us very clearly, he's sitting on the Father's right hand on the Father's throne. He says that out of his own mouth. He says that in the book of Revelation, that that's what he's doing right now. Why do we need the book of Matthew then? We need the book of Matthew because this is something, if you, if you were a Gentile Christian and you're sitting in your, a lot of people always said he wrote this as an evangelistic letter to the Jews. The interesting thing about this is that when you have Jew, when you see Paul evangelizing Jews, he doesn't go through and do any of this. He doesn't do this to evangelize Jews. He doesn't build a case for Jesus Christ being because does a Jew have to be convinced that Christ is their king? No. They have to be convinced that Christ died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again, and they're forgiven, just like you and I have to. They have to believe the same gospel. There's not a separate gospel for Jewish people today. They have to believe the same thing we do. Although there are a lot of people in Christianity that think Jews do have to be convinced that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, their king. Messiah doesn't mean king, by the way. Messiah means anointed one, but normally it was anointed to be king. Well, aren't Messianic Christians more valuable than regular Christians? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> Everybody in the body of Christ is equal. Everybody in the body of Christ is equal. This is, this is, I'm giving you my opinion on this, but I'm convinced that the book of Matthew was given for our benefit so you and I could see 
What what did that what was that kingdom supposed to look like and what did Jesus do? Because if because if you talk about people talk to people about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins, dying and raising again, then you go, well, what was all the what why did they put him on a cross? Well, because he presented him as king himself as king. Well, why is that a problem? They didn't want that king. They wanted a king they could control, not a king that was going to actually raise the bar and make them live righteously like they were supposed to. They didn't want that. And so the book of Matthew <coughs> helps explain for you and I what happened with that Old Testament promise of the Messiah and the kingdom. So it's actually a book for you and I to understand better what was going on with Christ. And it does. So you could take it back to the promise made to David in the Davidic, the Davidic covenant. I'm about the one to Abraham. Right, but I'm saying if you went to the because he mentions David first and then Abraham. If you start with David, he made a covenant to David that is still valid, that was will be fulfilled with Christ, and then made covenant with with Abraham that also was valid with Christ with regard to those things. So yeah, it's assuring them. Again, if you really take Matthew for what it says, you as a Christian cannot become one that believes in what we call replacement theology. And replacement theology primarily believes that the church has taken over Israel's promises. Of course, in some of them, literally, they think literally we're going to get that land over there. But most of them, spiritually, they and spiritual sounds really cool, but technically what they're doing is they're allegorizing the promises that God made to the people of Israel. So it assures us that that's not the case. Now I'm going to have to pick up my pace or we're going to be here a really long time today. Uh, Mark chapter 1, and Mark actually to me is a little bit easier to handle uh, in pointing some things out, but if you go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, and there's a state, statement that he makes at the beginning that I think people just kind of almost gloss over, but it's actually very important. Because remember, Mark served with Paul for a short period of time. And then he cut, cut and ran. And then he served with Peter later on. And when he's serving with Peter, you need to remember that, you know what Mark or what Paul says about Mark at the end of Paul's life? You know what he says about Mark? He is valuable to the ministry. Meaning, yeah, you know what? Sometimes when you're young and your mommy still has to wipe your nose, you make some stupid choices. Sometimes we do that when we're old. But Mark grew up. He matured. And Peter and Paul could say he actually became valuable. He became valuable to the ministry. So, so Mark matured. And Mark tells you something in verse 1. It says the beginning of the gospel. This is, I think, the reason that they attach the word gospel to all these gospels because this is the only one that says this. But the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason he calls it, and it doesn't say the beginning. Literally, it's a beginning. And what Mark does, Mark has some of the same events that you have in Matthew and Luke. <clears throat> but what you have with Mark is you have this fast pace. Everybody says this. Mark's pace is really fast. He's, he is renowned for using the, the, the conjunction in the Greek uh, and, it's conjunction chi, but repeatedly. But he also, and I mark this down, he uses the word in the Greek, the word immediately, which is a word meaning very quickly, right after this, and then after this, and then after this. He uses that word 42 times in this book. In Matthew, five times. In Luke, one time. But Mark uses it 42 times. Mark's just saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And Mark does not have Jesus Christ quoting a lot of scripture which you have a lot of going on in Matthew, especially in connection with this. And this is, I'm convinced that this is what Mark is doing. And this is even a place where Mark is helpful for you. If you were to go to, and we're not, um, I'm not going to make you go over there. It will take a long time. But if you go to Acts 10, you find that when Peter, and Paul does the same thing when you go to the synagogue in uh, Acts uh, 13, but in Acts chapter 10, when, when Peter is speaking to the household of Cornelius, he doesn't just walk in there and says, hey, this Jesus showed up down here and he died. They put him on a cross and he, was, he, he died, but God raised him again. He doesn't do that. He actually gives a little background. It's not a lot, but he does give some background. 
And I believe that that's exactly what Mark is saying, having traveled with Peter. Because one of the things that was known was that Peter would, would tell some events of the life of Jesus and then share the gospel. And people kept saying, we'd like a collection of those. We'd like a collection of those stories, those vignettes. And Peter didn't want to write them down. This is what we're getting extra biblical. Peter didn't want to write them down. And Mark said, could I write them down? And Peter says, yes. And then supposedly Peter gave them his thumbs up on those things. What does the Gospel of Mark provide? Provides short little glimpses from the life of Jesus and things he did because what Peter says is he went about doing good and healing all those who were being harmed by demons. So he's doing good and healing people. And Mark has many of these signs and things in his Gospel so that when you share the Gospel, and it happens once in a while, that you run into a person they have no clue who this Jesus is. Now, in our culture, a lot of people have heard the name Jesus, not just as a cuss word, okay? But actually, in terms of the person of Jesus in the Bible, and they've actually heard of him. So they have some knowledge. But think in their world, as they traveled around, there were all these people probably, once you got out of, out of Judea, maybe out of Samaria, and maybe you went on up into Antioch, Assyria. There are probably a lot of people up there. Jesus, who's this? They, they probably had heard the name Jesus because the name Jesus is simply a Greek pronunciation of whose name? Joshua. Joshua. Yeah, Joshua. In fact, in Hebrew, they say Yeshua. And in Greek, they say Yesu. It's basically, it's the same name. It's, it is the same name. It's just a Greek pronunciation versus a Hebrew pronunciation. It's the same name. So, and it was a very popular name. It was one of the more, most popular names uh, in the, among the Jewish people. So people heard the name Jesus, but they probably didn't know about this man. And what Peter does for us, and Mark now provides, is these vignettes. This is who this Jesus was. This is who he was. But he doesn't give us he doesn't give us a birth narrative. There's no birth narrative in the book of Mark. Why is that? Because when he shared the gospel, it wasn't important for him to tell how he came into the world. He's just saying he went about doing good and healing many. That was what he was sharing. <clears throat> Not, let me go back and tell you about the birth of Christ. That wasn't important because that doesn't say anything about his particular character. It's he exhibits that character. And so this is why we have the book of Mark uh, in this regard. Put my page the other way. Let's go over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, and the New American Standard reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to draw... And, and I think when he says many here, I don't think he means... Matthew and Mark, he says many. So there were a lot of other people that had attempted to put, collate some sort of an account of the life of Christ, undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Notice he doesn't say that he's an eyewitness because he's not. And servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write uh, it for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he's giving this individual Theophilus kind of an orderly arrangement. And there's people that come to Luke and they go, well, he just wanted an orderly arrangement. He's actually not giving it chronologically. And the reason they say that is because they think Mark is the first book written. And the only reason they think Mark is the first book written is because they apply what we, would, what we would call an evolutionary approach to literature that you start with a little book, and then it grows, and then it grows. People add tradition, and then more tradition to it. But the early church did not hold that view. That is a modern view that was developed in the very late 1700s. It, that was not a view held before that. The church has consistently held that the very first gospel that was actually written was Matthew, and the second gospel written was written by Luke. And Mark was lit, written later. 
And, and what they always think is that Luke's copying from Mark. He's got Mark over here. Okay, let's put this in here. And then I got these details from these guys over here. And I'm, that's not, he's not doing that at all. His is an orderly arrangement. And he's given an exact order of this. I want you to turn with me to a couple of different things uh, here in the opening of Luke. Luke chapter 1. Look with me at verse 32. This is when Gabriel uh, appears to Mary to announce what's going to happen. And notice what Mary's told right, at the, right from the outset. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Our brother Jim has done some work on the idea of the Most High and the Most High God in this. He's going to be Son of the Most High. Just think what that would have done for... Now, I don't think Mary understood this. It's very plain as you go on this that Mary's always like, what? What? She's trying to make sense out of all of these things. And she doesn't understand all of the things that are going to happen. But let's just put it this way, just very pointedly. Mary knew something unusual that happened because Mary got pregnant and she'd never fooled around with, had sex, done anything with any man. How in the world does that happen? She's not dumb. This, this first century people, they didn't realize, baloney, these people understood these things as well as we do. They may not have known all the biological mechanics of it or the things, all of that of conception, but they knew what it took. So she knows that this child that she has is somehow supernatural, but putting that together with the details of what that meant for Jesus Christ, her son, to be son of the Most High and all the things that were going along, this, these are things that is very plain as you read on in Luke, and probably because he had talked with her personally. Probably Luke had talked with Mary personally and knew and found from her. She goes, yeah, when they told me this, I'm sitting there and it, he tells us over and later on in, in, uh, when he's 12 years old and, and it has that account, it says Mary, it, our Bible says treasured these things up in her heart, but in the Greek it says she's throwing these around in her mind like, what, what, what's, what's he talking, what's my boy talking about? What's my 12-year-old kid talking about? Could you imagine could you imagine if you'd lost your 12-year-old and it takes you a few days to find him back in Jerusalem, a city with all those people? And he goes, why didn't you come looking for me here in the first place? Don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? And she looks at Joseph like, what? <laughs> my father's business? See, he doesn't, she doesn't get this. And it says that she was throwing these things around in her heart. She's trying to make sense out of what's going on, despite the fact that she hasn't. But let me ask you, how many times have you guys had somebody teach you the plain scripture, but because it does not fit the way you're thinking at that time, you're going, hmm, hmm, hmm. You know what I'm talking about? That sometimes the word of God, things you're taught, challenge where you are. And it's not that most of us don't immediately just grab it and go, yeah, that's it. A lot of times it, there's a little bit of thinking that goes on in time where God's working us through learning that truth. And Mary has to figure some of these things out, and it takes a little bit of time. Turn to chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, where we have, uh, where we actually have the, the, the uh, most drawn-out account of the actual birth of Christ and the events that took place there here in Luke chapter 2 uh, came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why, did, why in the world does Luke tell us that? Because he told you I was going to give you an orderly account. And these people that are probably reading this at their day could probably go, Oh, yeah. Some of these people probably were alive at that time that are reading Luke's account and going, oh, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that census that they took. I remember those things. And they could think back to that, just like there's some of you that could say, well, actually, no, I'm sorry. None of you could remember the day that they, because even my parents, my dad was just, Daryl might remember the day. Pardon me, Daryl. But you might remember the day that ja the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. See, he remembers that. It's like there's events like that you remember. How many of you remember the day that they landed on the moon? You guys remember that? Yeah. Peg and I were little kids, but I remember being at my grandparents and watching it on their TV, you know, that day. So there's things, event. oh yeah, I remember that. 
I remember that. You you might not remember the exact year, but you kind of, in your mind, can go back there a ways. So he's putting those details in there so that these people could say, yeah, oh, I get that. That, that. There was, oh, we're on a real calendar. Somebody's not just making up a story now. They're actually telling about a real event in real time. Okay. Yes? I have a note that um, this fact used to be disputed or questioned about this, but Sir, in Sir Walter Ramsey's book, he uh, documents when this became, they found reference to this on inscriptions and uh, just kind of interesting, archaeologically. Yeah, it, it, and, and what Josh is sharing there is really important. When people come and they go, ah, oh, the word of God's wrong there, the word of God's wrong. The thing is, do you know how many times that people have stood their ground and said, the word of God's wrong here? We know for a fact that that never happened. And then all of a sudden, they're digging around and all of a sudden they come across some tablets and it's got stuff and they're going, oh, that's that exact event. <laughs> did, did we need those things to tell us that the word of God is true? No. It's just that there are some people because they are doubters and they don't want to accept the word of God is true. Because if you... You know what happens if you have to accept the Word of God as true? Then that means the message that's in the Word of God that talks to you about your need of salvation and your need to rely on God, you all of a sudden can just discount that and say, well, that's, I don't, I can, they messed up a whole bunch of other stuff. I don't need that information. And that's why people ultimately do this. Goes through the rest of this. We all know that he's talking here about the, the literal birth. I want you to turn over to chapter 3 because there's a point I want, want to make here in chapter 3. If you, the tricky thing about Luke is if you're going to find the genealogy like you have in Matthew, you've got to go all the way to chapter 3. It, you don't, it doesn't start off with the genealogy like Matthew does. But in Luke chapter 3, it says in verse 23, And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was, notice what Luke says, about 30 years. He's not 25. He's not 35. He's about 30. What's that mean? He was 28. 29, 30, 31. In other words, what we're saying is he's, he's right in that, 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 that ballpark. And apparently Luke probably hadn't talked to anybody. Mary said, because even Mary's probably thinking back, and, and I don't know. I mean, I, you can talk to my mom and dad, and you could say, when did, how old was Tim when they did this? And my mom and dad go, oh, he was probably, I don't know. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Has that ever happened with you and your kids, trying to remember how old your kids when, when some event happened or something? So uh, God didn't say that he was going to give Mary a divine memory to remember everything. But supposedly, then, it says, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Notice that, supposedly. In other words, he wasn't, Luke's affirming you, Jesus was not Joseph's son. Jesus was not Joseph's son. Okay? Jesus Christ came... Uh, from the Father. Then the other thing here is look at the end of this uh, genealogy. Go with me down to verse, just go to verse 38, Luke 3, verse 38. It says, And he was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, of Adam. And in son, literally, it's of Enosh, of Seth, of Adam, of God. In other words, you go back to Adam, and Adam was the first man that God cause to exist. Nobody else. The rest of them all came through parenting. We're procreated, not created. Okay, we all have a mom and daddy, so we all have a belly button as a result of that. But it tells us here, takes him back to Adam. And part of the significance of that is telling you that this Jesus really has an anchor in real human history as a real human being. So there's Luke giving us this account. Now all of this then brings us then to the Gospel of John today. And John takes a very different tact. It is estimated, and I didn't, I didn't actually write this down, so, so you can check me on this, but they estimate, I think, like 75% or 80%, 75 or 80% of the Gospel of John does not occur in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And I might not be exact on that, but it's somewhere in this range. In other words, most of the book of John is very unique. And I'm going to show you why it's unique here in just a minute. Why it doesn't give an account like these others do. Where Matthew's showing you Jesus really was fulfilling these promises that God made to Abraham and David. Really was a king. Mark's telling you these are some, these are some of the good things that he was doing. 
When you talk to somebody about the gospel, say, yeah, he was casting demons out of people and he was healing people. He was going around, he cared, he was compassionate for people. Luke comes around and says, he was a real man. Luke also does one other thing I neglected. Luke has a lot of special emphasis on Jesus interacting with Gentiles that you don't get in the other gospels. Because most of Jesus' earthly ministry was all geared specifically to the Jews. But he does have some interaction with Gentiles and Luke includes those. And yet, who's Gen who is Luke? He's a... He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. Okay. But come to John chapter 1 and verse 1. John 1 and verse 1. It says, in a beginning. We've talked about this before. It's not the beginning. It's anytime there was a beginning. So there's not a definite article in front of the word beginning. Anytime there was a beginning, the word already was existing. He uses that word was in the Greek is what we call an imperfect tense, which just looks at something that is ongoing, but it's in a past. It's not saying he was in the sense that you go back to this beginning point, this is where he started. It's saying any beginning you ever have, he's already around. He's already doing stuff. He's already interacting with the Father and the Spirit as part of the Godhead. He doesn't call him here the Son. doesn't make reference to him as Jesus Christ because technically those are titles of his human nature. He refers to him as the Word, because he's the one in Genesis 1-1 that says, let there be light. He's the one in Genesis 1-1 that says to the other members of the Trinity, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. He's doing this because he is reading out, declaring the decree of God. He's also the Word that when you have many times in the Old Testament, it says, and the Word of God came, we're not going to look at all these, this is a fun study to do, but the word of God came, and it always says, and the word of God came, and the word for word there is always the Hebrew word davar, davar, kind of a BV sound in there, um, davar, and then it says, and he spoke. And when it said spoke, it's always the word amar, amar, a, what we'd say amr, okay, not dbvr. It's very different words. And Amar is always talking about this. So he's called the Word, and he shows up multiple times and speaks to people and gives them revelation. So when he uses this, this is no philosophical thing. People get into this, well, how do the Greeks understand the word word? And they have developed this crazy philosophy. It's not. It's just saying, this is one that's been around. And he's been revealing God to mankind multiple, multiple times throughout history as he's been engaged. So the word was facing God. So he's in, he's in a face-to-face -face relationship. The word there with, pros in the, in the Greek is indicating that he's in a fellowship relationship with this other person. And the word himself was God. He has the same quality as the person that he's with because they're the same God. There's not three gods. I had somebody sit in my living room here a couple weeks ago and tell me, we're just like you. We pray to the same father. And then I said, no, because you believe that Jesus is born from God. But the Bible tells us that there's one God. She goes, well, we believe in three trinities. And I'm like, no, the trinity is that there's one God that is three persons. They're one God, not three gods. One God, three persons. That was kind of the response. Kind of, kind of brought the conversation a little bit to an end on that point. It tells us in verse 2, he was in a beginning with God. All things came to be by him, and apart from nothing came to be that has come to be. In other words, and that word come to be means, not, it's not just the word create, it just means to come into existence. And the significance of that is, he didn't come into existence. Because he then would have to be his own cause. And you want to talk about an oxymoronic statement? Something that doesn't exist, causes itself to exist, doesn't happen. Okay, and then he goes on, and in him was life. That would be what kind of life? God's life. God's life. Also, we call it frequently eternal life. Okay, and, and that life was the light of men. And by the way, when it was the light of men, it didn't shine forever. Because if you went over to John chapter 8, Jesus says, you walk in the light while you have the light with you. You're not always going to have the light with you. When the light's gone, you're going to be walking in darkness. Talks to those Jews over there. So he's the light while he was walking among these people. And it says the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not 
American Standard's wrong. It's not comprehend here. It didn't overtake it. No matter what mankind tried to do during Jesus' earthly ministry, they were never able to squash the light. They were never able to put it out. They were never able to do that. He remained living out that. The only time, the only time during Jesus' earthly ministry that he did not demonstrate that light. Can anybody tell me? When was the only time in Jesus' earthly ministry that he did not demonstrate that light? Anyone? What? On the cross for three hours. And that was not something mankind did. They could nail him to a cross, but they can't put the light out. He, he, in connection with the Father and the Spirit, willingly chose to operate only in the realm of his human consciousness and, and as a man experienced what it was completely like to be separated from the Father and the Spirit. And he chose that. That was not a thing that mankind did to him. It's very important. There's a number of things in between. I want to get down to verse 14 now. It says, And the Word became flesh. Now sometimes the word flesh is referring to this stuff right here, right? Sometimes it's referring to this physical meat. But there's other times that the word flesh is used, and this is the way it's used here, simply of becoming human. So it's more than just your physical flesh. It also is including your spirit and your human soul. He just became man. Simple terms. He became man. Became like one of us. And he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is a word meaning to exist in a tent. Keep going here. And we beheld his glory. We have that word glory in there. You're talking about being able to see his reputation. He's not shining with beams of light coming out of his fingertips or out of his, out of his head. I just listened to somebody the other day that said that he was born, and I think we have that in some of the Christmas songs, that Jesus, this baby Jesus, that there was light coming out of him. There was not light coming emitting from him in that sense, visible light like that. That glory is that he's showing the character of God. He's showing who God really is in this way, and that's how he dwelt among them because he, this, is, this, is going back, this is going back to the same idea that in the Old Testament when God had Moses build the tabernacle or the tent, God's glory came down, filled the tent, and Moses couldn't be in the tent anymore. When Solomon built the temple, the glory of God came down, filled the temple, and the priest couldn't be in the, in the temple anymore because the glory of God was so intense there. Here, the glory of God is coming down here in a tent, and it's going to be a temporary existence. He didn't walk among men forever. He's not walking among men today in this sense. So it's like this image of God coming down and filling this tent, and he's not, but he's not walking on the earth in this way. That, that body is existent in heaven. It hasn't disappeared in that sense, just not here on earth. And it says, and we beheld, and that word beheld here means that we looked at it, and we processed it. And John's saying, we're watching him as he's going about doing these things, interacting with people. And we're like, what, what is that? What, what's going on over there? I mean, does that ever happen with you? You ever have things in your life that you're watching somebody do something and you're trying to make sense out of what you're seeing? But they were doing that because they had never seen God in a human nature before. So they're trying to figure out what it is that they're watching. He says, and we mail this glory. Glory as of a, not an only begotten, but a special kind of one, a unique kind of one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we've told you this before on John. We did this, uh, we, we worked through the Upper Room Discourse on Wednesday nights. It took us a, a, a year or two to, to go through this. But we kind of surveyed through John and his signs but John's in including that this is an introduction. If you're going to read the Gospel of John, he expects you to read the introduction. You ever buy a nonfiction book and at the beginning of it, the author, there's, there's sometimes there's a thing they call the preface. The preface you can skip over. I'm not saying you should, but I'm just saying. But what you don't want to skip over when you read a book, you don't want to skip over the introduction. Because if the introduction is written right, the author is going to say, this is what I've attempted to do. This is what I've attempted to do. I'm going to try to show it to you like this, 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 this. So it's like telling you up front, this is what this book's going to be about. And then the rest of the book does that. And he's telling you here, we saw, 
we beheld, we were fixing our eyes on and mentally trying to process what we're seeing. And we saw this special kind of one from the Father, and we saw him full of grace and truth. So as you read through the Gospel of John, <coughs> you are going to see the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating grace and truth. And we could spend, we could spend the next, well, several weeks, as, I, as we did in that study on Wednesday night, looking through John and showing you places where he shows grace and truth. But I want to look at one, and it's, it's, it's my favorite one in the Gospel of John. I, you shouldn't have favorites, but it's mine. Turn to John chapter 8. And the interesting thing about this one is this is the one passage that most modern scholars all agree should not be in the Gospel of John. Do you know that? Almost all modern scholars think that these verses should not be in the Gospel of John. And you know why they think they shouldn't be there? Because the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John do not include these verses. <clears throat> yeah, they don't include these verses. But there's something else that's connected with those, with those manuscripts. Those manuscripts come out of the region to the south, the region that we know as Alexandria, Egypt. <clears throat> and there was a man by the name of Augustine. Whatever else Augustine may have written, one thing that is helpful for us, he says, he talks about this passage, and he says there are people that have torn these pages, essentially, torn these pages from their Bibles. They've removed them from their Bibles. And by then, they, they were, book, Bibles were being passed around in book form, okay? When the New Testament was being written, you had a transition from scrolls to books taking place because books were easier to handle than unruly scrolls. But he said they were tearing these out. And the reason they were tearing this out, because if you know the story about the man, woman caught in adultery, they said they're removing it because they, they feel if it remains in the text, that it's, that, it, that it's going to give women permission to cheat on their husbands. Augustine tells you that. He says it's in the Bibles, but people are removing it from their Bibles because it's talking about a woman that's caught in the act of adultery and people were afraid if Jesus let her go and didn't punish her for that, then women are going to think, well, I can cheat on my husband and I'm not going to get punished. And so they say, well, let's just take those verses out of the Bible. And yet modern scholars discount what, what, what Augustine says and say, well, we're just going to look at the fact we got these old manuscripts and, yep, they don't have it, so it shouldn't be there. And you know why I think, I'm going to be real honest, why I think that this is so important for you to know that part? And that is because this statement here, and I'm not saying it's the only one. The Gospel of John's full of these examples of Jesus showing grace and truth. But this one here is like the epitome of Jesus demonstrating grace and truth. Let's read the account. John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, which that's where he was at the end of chapter 7. He'd been up at the temple. He came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him and sat down and began to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, these are not Jesus' friends. These are the guys that are trying to get him arrested. They want him gone. In fact, that's what was going on at the end of chapter 7. They sent their own temple police up to arrest Jesus, they come back and they're going, where is he? You didn't bring him with you. you were, he was supposed to be arrested. And they go, well, no one ever spoke like this man did. And they go, you are, you become one of his disciples? Have any of us believed in him? That's, that's condescending way of trying to put a person in their place instead of actually using real, genuine truth you just say, well, we're experts. We don't hold that, do we? And they just belittle those guys. So now they themselves, rather than sending their police to arrest Jesus, they're going to take it on themselves. And they come to him and they brought a woman caught in adultery and set her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Let me ask you a question. If she was caught in the very act, what's missing? What'd you say? The man's not here. Where's the guy? I mean, if they, maybe he was faster than her. I don't know. But I mean, if they could catch her, you'd think that they could catch him. 
Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now what they've done is they put Jesus in a no-win situation. If he sides with the law of Moses and said, yes, she should be stoned, he's going to lose popularity with the people. But even more so, he's going to be at odds with the Roman government. Because the Roman government did not allow the Jews to put somebody to death for committing acts of adultery. Because the Romans were immoral people by, the, by their nature. Okay? So that wasn't a big deal. If he said, no, let her go, now he looks like he's opposed to the law of Moses. So how do you win, how do you win a situation like that? You start over here, you side with the law of Moses, you're, 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 Rome's, you're Rome's enemy, and the people don't like you anymore, which they probably would have preferred that. If you go over here and you side with, uh, and you side with Rome, or not really side with Rome, but say, don't do anything to her, now all of a sudden you seem to be opposing the law of Moses. And he says, or <clears throat> what happens in there, uh, verse 6, and they were saying this, they were testing him. And the word test here is the word pyrazo, which in the Greek means they're putting him to a test, expecting him to fail. <laughs> we have got you. You cannot win. In order that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. And we're not even going to try to guess what he wrote on the ground. People say, oh, he's writing out the commandments. And so it doesn't tell us. He's just writing in the ground. That's, in other words, it's like he's ignoring the whole thing that they're trying to do. And when they continued then asking him, he stood up and he said to them, Okay, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Okay, if you're a sinless one in here, you, you pick up the stone and you guys take around the stoner. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Okay, he gave, him a, he gave him a principle by which to operate. And when they heard it, they began going out one by one, beginning with the, who? The older ones. And he was left alone and the woman, and the woman where she was in the midst. Now, let me ask you a question when it says starting with the older ones. And I'm just going to ask you, those of you, I'm, I'm, I'm on the cusp of 60, okay? So I'm not a young buck anymore by any stretch, okay? So those of you that are in this older category, would you say at this stage in your life, you are more aware of sin, struggles, problems in your life than maybe you were when you were younger? You've lived long enough. You see it. You, you can't make excuses for your life anymore. You realize when you have had struggles, it's like, yeah, I definitely have a struggle. Sometimes when you're young, it's like, yeah, I got some sin struggles, but it's, it's, it's okay. And you get older and you get wiser and you go, no, it's a problem. And it's not only a problem, but you've seen how it's affected the way you think and act. Even if you sin and nobody else knows about it, you know how it affects the way you think and relate to people. This is for believers on that regard. I don't know if unsaved people feel the same way. But I just wonder about that, why it starts with the oldest ones, that they head out first and then the younger ones. Verse 10, And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are those? Did no one condemn you? No one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. He knows what they're up to. That's truth. He sees their situation. Part of truth isn't just knowing the facts. It's knowing how to respond to the facts. How many of you know the facts in certain situations in life, but you're like, I don't, know how to I don't even know how to react to that. You, know, you ever feel like you're in that situation? I know the way it is, but I don't know what to do. That's part of truth, is that he not only knows what the facts are, but he knows how to respond to it appropriately. And the, and the appropriate thing is not to take these guys on. Just not, don't play their game. <laughs> you ever watch people? You know, you're watching. This is especially more true with young people that they, Josh has got to talk to me about that when he's trying to train people working at the store. Don't play their day, game. Don't get mixed up with that, guys. Just, just learn to let go of that thing. But when you're young, you're, gonna, you're ready to mess around and get everybody fixed. And, and it doesn't work. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, okay, 
If you're without sin, you, you, you throw the first stone. Let's, put, let's just put the ball back in your court. <laughs> I'm not going to play your game. And they all leave. And when it's done, he says, nobody condemned her. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. So we saw what truth was, but when he says, neither do I condemn you, no, it's that demonstrating. That's showing grace. Because you know what? She, she was worthy to be condemned. We're not making excuse for her committing adultery. We're not saying that that was okay. What we're saying is, Jesus Christ treated her with grace. And that's, it, it, this sitting like right here in the middle of this, this book, a, a, a thing that they've taken out is so sad because it's like the, the epitome of Jesus demonstrating both grace and truth in this interaction. You get a lot of these with different people that he interacts with. He shows grace to a guy that's laying by a pool that's lame, and the guy's lame, according to Jesus' words, don't sin so nothing worse happens to you. <laughs> Meaning, well, what happened to him probably happened to be by his own fault, that man. And yet Jesus, and the guy's ungrateful. The guy turns him into the people. <laughs> and yet Jesus still is gracious to him. Yes, Ronnie. I was just going to say on that one verse when it says, um, go now, um, do not sin anymore. He exhibits grace, but that's kind of a thing where grace doesn't mean that you're okay to keep doing the wrong thing. It's like he says, stop doing it. And so I think that's an important thing because a lot of people say grace is, you know, just do whatever you want. Yeah. We got, I was, you know, you see those on the, on the dashboards of cars that, hippie Jesus guy with thumbs up, or it's got a thumb up like that, and bobblehead Jesus like that. He's not that way. He's not a guy who goes, we're all good. We're all good. Everything's good. He goes, no, that's not right. That's, we, we, you, we, that's not what we should be doing. So don't sin anymore. He doesn't say, don't sin anymore or you will be condemned. He doesn't even say that. He just says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And you know the thing about that? I bet every one of us, I mean, we may not have done what she did, but every one of us has done something in our life for which we could honestly say, we are worthy to be condemned. But God, by his grace, says, okay, get on your feet and let's do this again. <laughs> let's go on. There's, there's things I have for you to do. And that's a hard thing. There's people that they, they live in their past and they're stuck with this thing that happened, you know, in the past. And they, they, they don't ever move, move on and say, that's, that, that happened. That was in the past. Let's just, by grace, just move on. That's what Jesus Christ is doing. Now, one last passage I want to look at, and back in chapter 1, because this, this is where it comes to us now. John chapter 1, in verse 17. Verse 16 is actually the key, kind of the linchpin in here. For all of, for, of his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace, or grace in place of grace. See, under the law, they got grace in place of law. There was no grace in the law. I've listened to preachers. I've read teachers that said, the, grace, the law was gracious. The, the law was God's gracious gift to mankind. Baloney. The Bible never says that. And I've listened to some very well-known, very prominent, we're not talking about wacko guys, okay? I know there's plenty of those guys out there. I hope, hope I'm not one of them, but you know what I'm saying. But there are, there are some people out there well-respected, and I hear them say, the law is God's gracious gift to mankind, and the law was full of grace, baloney. The law was not full of grace. Paul calls it a ministry of condemnation. Paul said it was a ministry that was designed to demonstrate that you and I are sinners, that we have a sinful nature, that we can't, <coughs> it was given to demonstrate what we cannot do. Did God show grace to the people that were under the law? Yeah, he did. I mean, they, 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 they continued to live. Yeah, they were punished. They suffered the punishments. People died. People went into captivities. People were, in, were enslaved. But God also continued to show grace. David continued to live and rule after he broke a law for which he should have died. Two laws. He had a man killed, orchestrated a man's death, and not only cheated on his wife, but made that woman cheat on her husband. And under the law, both of them should have died. So God did show grace to people. 
throughout the Old Testament. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't, it was in spite of the law, not because of the law. Uh, that brings us then, we get grace in place of grace. In other words, we're given grace, which is more grace, more grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Then in the Greek, literally, it's the grace and the truth. And they don't translate those because I think people don't understand what he's saying. What John is telling you, it's the grace, the grace that you and I know is God's way of life for us today, and the truth, which is God's provision for you and I to actually experience freedom with regard to the sin nature so that God can do his work through you, those came to be. They weren't given, they came to be, he says, through Jesus Christ. They weren't realized. They came into existence. I think realized by the NASB hides what is saying? What he's saying is they had never been the way of life for anybody before, but they are the way of life for us now. And that's why this is important. John is saying, I can look back at the life of Jesus. And while that life of Jesus was primarily about Jesus coming down and doing work for the people of Israel as God's promised king for them, for you and I, we can look at the life and we can see him demonstrate grace and truth to people. And we can take then to heart that you and I today are the people that are under God's grace and truth. We get to live by the truth. We get to practice that, experience that freedom. We get to live under grace. He says that came to be. And when you read this, you pay attention to what you're watching Jesus Christ do as he interacts with people in different situations. And Jesus isn't teaching, hey, I'm showing you that you're going to live by grace. He doesn't ever say that because that's not what he's doing. He just demonstrates it by the way he interacts. He's demonstrated by these things that he's doing in this book. So John is not concerned with giving you a birth narrative. He's given, he's, he says, I'm going to take some events that Matthew and Mark and Luke haven't taken. And I'm going to look at some of these events that are going to be Jesus Christ demonstrating grace and truth. The word become flesh. The word dwelling among us. The word showing forth God's glory or his reputation. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to have your word. We're thankful for all four gospels. Uh, sometimes we're, we're very quick to say, well, we don't live by Matthew. Yeah, we don't. And we don't live by all the things that are written in the gospel of John. But all of these still have value for us. They help us to understand your promise and your faithfulness to your people, Israel, the promises that you made to Abraham and to David. But we also find, especially here in John, Jesus Christ demonstrating some things that we sometimes need to think about as he just lives out grace and truth. He doesn't teach about it, but he lives that out. Help us to be those that would not only just know about grace and truth as part of our lives, but like Jesus Christ, take the opportunity and privilege of living these things out as we interact with others. We thank you for this time together and whatever you have in store for us in the remainder of this day and our Christmas day tomorrow, that time we might be spending with family and doing some different things. We ask that you would help us to remember first and foremost that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and they saw, those people then, got to see what that glory was like, full of grace and truth. Amen.